be looking tonight at uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 that we read just uh, a few moments ago. So if you've got it uh, open in front of you, you'll find that helpful as I want to look at some of the main themes in this chapter. When you buy things, maybe you order things uh, online or go into a shop and buy things, you'll often see at the bottom somewhere it says uh, you've got to tick a little box if you go online that talks about the T's and C's, terms and conditions. And you tick the box and then you put your order in. I wonder how many of you actually look to see what those terms and conditions are. Most of us don't. I don't. I'll tick the box and go ahead with the, uh, with the order. And then sometimes you think, hmm, I wish I'd checked that before. Because maybe you bought something and it's not what you expected it to be. Or something went wrong or you found something better somewhere else and you want to know, can I take it back? Can I get my money back? And you go to the terms and conditions and you find, no, sorry, not allowed to. You could have done in the first few days, but it's too late now. You can't do it. And you think, if only I'd read those before I bought them. Most of us, we just ignore, don't we, those terms and conditions until there's a particular need arises and then we have a look and see, well, what's it actually saying there? As I was thinking about that, this chapter we have before us tonight, 1 Peter 4, in many ways gives some of the terms and conditions of living the Christian life. The T's and C's of being a Christian. Bear in mind that Peter wrote this first letter to encourage Christians to live for the glory of God and for the will of God. So the question is, if we are living for the glory of God and for the will of God, what are our terms and conditions of service? What can we expect if we live in this way? And it seems to me there are in particular three of these terms and conditions in this chapter. He speaks about service, he speaks about suffering, and he speaks about salvation. And if we are seeking to live for the honor and glory of God, we need to know what it is to serve the Lord. We may well need to know what it is to suffer for him. And we'll certainly need to know what salvation is all about. So those, if you like, are three of the terms and conditions of being a Christian and living the Christian life. And let's see how that's worked out here in this chapter. 1 Peter chapter 4. He sets out his aim in verse 2, where he says that his aim is not to live for human desires, but for the will of God. And the reason, he says, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We do it because Christ suffered for us. By saying that, he looks back to the end of the previous chapter, chapter 3 and verse 18, where he expanded on that, where he said, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so Peter was there explaining how the suffering of Jesus on that cross brings us into a relationship with God. And if we now, as the people of God, are to live in that relationship with God, this is how it works out. Because Christ suffered for us, then our responsibility is to live for him, to live according to his will and for his glory. It's our privilege 
and it's our responsibility to live according to his will and for his glory. So how are we to do that? How are we to serve? Well, in verses 3 and 4, Peter gives us the negative. Then in verses 7 to 11, the positive about Christian service. Verses 3 and 4, look at those verses. It says, The time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That was written in the first century AD. Things any different in the 21st century? Don't think so. If we look out there in the world in which we live, what Peter is describing as the behavior of unbelievers in his day is very much the behavior of unbelievers in our day. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawlessness, and so on. Living for pleasure with no thought of restraint and no thought of the effect on other people. And in verse 4, he points out how unbelievers don't understand why Christians don't do these things. We see the same today, don't we? He says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you or they abuse you. Don't we have the same thing today? How is there non-Christians maybe in your family or in the place where you work or your neighbors, your local community, and they may say, well, why don't you ever do this kind of behavior? Why don't you ever go there? We do that, and it's really good. Why don't you come with us? And they can't understand why we don't follow that type of behavior as the people of God. And so their usual reaction is they'll make fun in some way and make some kind of maybe sarcastic comment about being a Christian. How do unbelievers think today? It's usually about what they can do to please themselves, enjoy themselves, without much thought of other people and the effect it may have on them. Uh, one thing that summed it up for me a number of years ago when I was uh, still teaching before I reached that glorious state of retirement. And uh, I remember on one occasion I was giving an exam on, on the Ten Commandments. And the pupils had, had to learn the Ten Commandments, and then they had to explain what they thought they meant. And I always remember one person answered when it came to the Seventh Commandment, the commandment says, you shall not admit adultery. I thought, ah, that's the thinking of the world today, isn't it? Not you shall not commit adultery. You can do it, but you mustn't admit it. So isn't that in many ways the, the thinking of the world? I heard uh, a while ago of a Christian who um, joined the army as, uh, as a soldier. Uh, when he was being trained now in the early days of being in the army, an army corporal was addressing the, the new recruits. And he actually said this to these new recruits. He said, in the army, he said, you can do as you like as long as you don't get caught. What's he saying? We have no real standards here. You can do whatever you want to do. You can live as you wish to live as long as you don't get caught. Just keep it secret. Keep it private. Don't let other people know. Doesn't that in many ways sum up the, the attitude that we face in these days? By contrast, the Christian has to say, is this pleasing to God? 
Is this according to his word and his will? And is it for his glory? So we see there the negative. If we are living a life serving God, we don't go down that route because that is pleasing ourselves and not pleasing God. Then the contrast comes in verses 7 to 11 with the positive. Christian service includes, now there's a number of things he mentions here. I'll go through them uh, quickly. The first thing he says is self-control in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled. Self-controlled, of course, is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. It comes from the work of God within us. And it's in contrast to what we saw there in verse 3. In contrast to the way that these unbelievers are behaving, what he's saying is if we are serving God, we are to be self-controlled. In other words, we are being given by God the ability to resist the temptations of the flesh. And he's saying that by serving me, you must exercise self-control. Then he goes on to speak about praying. And it's interesting, he's talking about being self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, what's he talking about there? What he's talking about is, as servants of God, we, of course, are to pray. But to pray effectively, we need to have a clear mind in communication with the Lord. We are to be sober-minded. We are to be clear-minded. We are not to be wrapped up with all of these earthly, worldly things that he's been talking about. We are to be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers, asking the Lord for guidance, help, strength, comfort, grace, whatever it may be. We are to take that serious and sensible attitude to praying. The next thing he mentions in verse 8 is love. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Loving earnestly or, or deeply, as the NIV has. What's that saying? It's saying we don't give up on people. That as God's people serving him, we are to reflect Jesus' love to others. And Jesus never gave up on people. It's easy, isn't it, for us to think of someone that we have a, a degree of love for and then maybe they do something that we disagree with and uh, uh, we go off them and uh, we just ignore them. But earnest love, deep love, the love of Jesus will never give up on people, will never abandon people. And we are to reflect his love in the area where we live. Now, I know nothing at all about interior design. I know we have some experts here, and my wife thinks she is as well. And this is one thing that I learned, is that when you go into a house and you've got a room, and there's perhaps a dark part of uh, the living room there, that what you are supposed to do, I'm told, is put a mirror in that place, and you put it so it picks up light coming from the window, and the light from the window reflects in the mirror, and then that is reflected then to the rest of the room. So where it's a dark spot, it becomes a lighter spot. The mirror is placed to pick up the light from the window and reflect it back into the room. And really, that's a picture of how we are to be reflecting the love of Jesus. That as we walk with him in his light and in his love, so we are to be reflecting that love 
in the world in which we live. Our families, our communities, our workplaces, wherever they may be. We are reflectors of the love of Jesus. And that can be done in all sorts of ways. And he goes on to give one example in verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So one way in which we can show this love to others is hospitality. And it's frequently mentioned in the New Testament. And one of the reasons is that in New Testament days, uh, inns were often dangerous and immoral places. And if you were traveling from one place to another as a Christian, you really wouldn't want to stay in one of these inns. They were well known for all sorts of immoral practices and thieves were there and so on. So traveling Christians needed safe places to stay. And so he's saying, show hospitality to your brothers and sisters. And I love the way that he says it, without grumbling. I wonder how often maybe uh, uh, we asked, oh, can you, um, can you put someone up for a few nights? Oh, if I have to. Uh, I suppose so. I don't really want to, but okay, perhaps I better. Uh, and we can do things with the wrong motive, can't we? And we can grumble very easily. What he's saying is, if you are reflecting the love of Jesus, one way of doing it is by showing hospitality to those who need it, for those who are able to, not all are able to, of course, but for those who are able to provide hospitality, whether it may be a bed for a night or a, a meal or whatever it may be, then he's saying, do it without grumbling. Do it gladly, reflecting the love of Jesus to you, to these people. Then he goes on again to speak of one more thing in verses 10 and 11. We serve God by using the gifts that God has given us. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, and so on. What's he saying? Service. Let's think where we've been going. We are exercising self-control to do those things that please and honor God and not ourselves. We do it in prayer so that we know that the Lord is with us. We do it that we might reflect the love of Jesus to those with whom we mix. One example of which is hospitality. And then he's saying and broadening it, whatever gifts God has given you, and God has given gifts to, to all of us. Whatever they are, he's saying, use them in the service of others. He doesn't mention the gifts here. Elsewhere in the New Testament, a whole variety of gifts are mentioned. I'm sure you know what many of them are. Some of them are what you may call spiritual gifts. Some of them are practical gifts. And whatever our gifts may be, what he's saying is, we are to use them not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of other people in the service of God. And sometimes we may say, if maybe someone asks us to do something, and it's in the area perhaps where we have a, shall we say, a measure of gifting. And sometimes we say, oh, I, I, I can't do that. Uh, we bring out all sorts of excuses. But note what Peter says here. He's saying, if God has given you a certain gift to be used for him, he will give you the strength that you need to carry it out. And we do all of these services of God, not in our own strength, but in his strength. And what's more, verse 11, the end of it tells us that by doing that, God is glorified as we use his 
gifts. So we're talking here about a life of serving the Lord. And he's giving a flavor here. Negatively, if we're serving the Lord, we don't do those things. But our life is shaped by these things. Self-control, prayer, love, hospitality, using our gifts, and so on. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this. Once wrote this. He said, he is no Christian who does not seek to serve God. God deserves to be served with all the energy of which we are capable. We all have the privilege and responsibility of serving the Lord. That's the first of the T's and C's. But then he moves on then and he talks about what goes with serving. And it's something that maybe we're not too keen to think about. And it's suffering. Verses 12 to 16 and in verse 19 as well. He's saying, if you are living a life of serving the Lord like this, there will be associated suffering with it. Now remember that Peter was writing this letter to Christians in today what we call northern Turkey. Many of them were facing very real suffering and persecution. The Roman emperor was Nero. And you know what Nero was well known for. And indeed, within probably three years of writing this letter, both Peter and Paul had probably been martyred for their faith. So he's speaking to a very real situation, to people who knew what it was in their situation to know persecution and suffering. What does Peter say then about Christians facing suffering? He says in verse 12, it's to be expected. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. He's saying, if you're a Christian, you can expect a measure of suffering. He's saying it, it's the norm for Christians. There's nothing unusual about it. It's there to test us. It's there to refine us. And what suffering can do for the Christian is prove that our faith is genuine and it can result in growth and maturity in our walk with the Lord. Bear in mind we are only talking here about suffering as a Christian. In this context, he's not talking about the wider problem of suffering generally in the world. He's talking here about suffering as a Christian. And that can be on a huge scale, can't it? It can be on massive persecution at one end, and it can be on maybe someone making fun of you at the other end. There's a huge scale. But he's saying, if you're serving the Lord, you can expect a measure of suffering. Don't be surprised when it comes. I'm sure that most of you know of Corrie ten Boom. That lady who certainly knew a great deal of suffering in her life when she was in the Ravensbrück concentration camp in the war because she had been hiding the Jews in her home in, in Holland. And you'll know how her sister died there and the conditions were absolutely dreadful. She wrote this on one occasion. She said, try and picture this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. What was she saying? She's saying, when you're in that dark tunnel, and there's no lights in the tunnel, 
You don't say, oh, I'm not having this anymore, so I'm going to throw away my ticket, jump off the train. Of course not. That you trust the engineer, the one who built the tunnel, that you know that there will be light coming at the end and you'll be coming out into the light. She wrote that in a very dark place, in a, or speaking of a dark place in the concentration camp. She knew very real suffering. But what she was saying is, when that comes, you don't say, oh, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I'm not going to trust God anymore. That's when you cling on to him more closely than ever before. Because he is the one who is control and will bring you out into the light. In many ways, it echoes what Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians. Remember, he said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God knows our limits. He knows how much time we can spend in the darkness before we need to come out into the light. Look at verse 13. He goes as far as saying, you can rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He was telling the Christians there, you can even rejoice in your sufferings because as you are suffering for Christ, so there's a sense in which you are sharing in his sufferings and it points to the joy that is to come. It reminds me of, I think, the most powerful sermon I've ever heard in my life. This is going to show my age now. Some of you remember that great disaster in Aberfan 55 years ago, 1966, when that coal tip slid down, 144 people were killed, 116 of them were children in the primary school. Absolutely dreadful experience. On the first anniversary of that disaster, there was a service in Aberfan, uh, and I was present at that service when Dr. Lloyd-Jones preached. And what he preached on was this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can imagine the scene. That chapel was full and there were many outside as well. Many of them had lost their children, their grandchildren, their nephews and nieces in the tragedy. It was a very sad occasion. And yet by the end of that service, after Lloyd-Jones had preached that sermon, those same people that went in with tears coming down their faces, by the time they left, there was something of a smile on their face. What had happened? They had seen the whole context that God had arranged. That yes, we have suffering in this world, but there is a greater glory to come. And the sufferings of this present age can't be compared with that glory that is to be revealed. And because the vast majority of those that died were children, Lloyd-Jones was telling them they are now sharing in that glory. They are there in heaven with the Lord. And it transforms the, the whole atmosphere that was in that service at that time. There was no rejoicing in their sufferings, but the rejoicing was that through those sufferings, there was a greater joy and a greater glory to come. I'll tell you another one of my favorite stories. Polycarp. You know Polycarp, one of the early church fathers? He was a remarkable man. He was Bishop of Smyrna in the 2nd century. 
And he was bishop at the time when the Romans were doing their best to get Christians to say Caesar is Lord rather than Jesus is Lord. And if they wouldn't confess that Caesar was Lord, many of them were being killed, uh, burned at the stake, and so on. Polycarp at this time was 86 years of age. And this Roman soldier came to him and said, Curse Christ and say Caesar is Lord, and then I'll release you. That's all you've got to do. To which Polycarp replied these famous words, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And with those words, he went to his death. What was he prepared to do? Go through that suffering now for the greater joy and glory that was to come. He goes on here to say that to be insulted for Christ is a blessing. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. No doubt Peter remembered the words that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Peter would have heard them. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. How does this apply to us? As I say, he's not addressing the wider problem of suffering the world generally, but suffering as a Christian. Thankfully, in our country, we know very little of this. Maybe people might make fun of us. Maybe we'll not get a job that we want. We might even lose our job in this day and age. Indeed, one Christian went for an interview for a particular company a little while ago. And when the interviewer found out that he was a Christian, he said this. He said, Christianity is an unrealistic philosophy for the business world where everybody is out to cheat everybody else. And because he was a Christian, he didn't get that job. We have that level, don't we, of suffering, persecution, whatever you want to call it, in our country at this present time. It might mean the end of a friendship or a relationship, but really, it's a very low level, isn't it, of suffering that we know for the Lord in this country. Very different around the world, where to be a Christian can mean unfair treatment, imprisonment, and death. Let me just give you a couple of statistics. Last year, 6,000 Christians were killed around the world because they were Christians for no other reason. Four and a half thousand of those are in one country, Nigeria. Around the world last year, over 5,000 churches were attacked or destroyed. Whether it was the building, whether it was the people, in some cases it was both, over 5,000. In China, about 100 million Christians are under constant surveillance. Every movement, where they go, what they do, they're being watched all the time. And many are being taken away and put into prison. In India, the Hindu nationalists aim to eradicate Christianity in India by the end of this year. They won't achieve it, of course, but they're doing their best to achieve that objective. In North Korea, Christians are sent to labor camps for harsh, cruel treatment. It's estimated there's about 300,000 Christians in North Korea. 
They have to be totally secretive about their faith, living in the most awful, deprived conditions, and yet staying true to the Lord in a country where possession of a Bible can be life-threatening. I read this statistic the other day. At the moment, it's estimated on good authority that one in seven Christians in the world is under a severe level of persecution. That's an awful lot of Christians. And yet, how many testimonies do we read of persecuted Christians who are able to rejoice in their sufferings and are knowing great blessings from God? I read of an Indian woman recently who was severely beaten in her house by eight or nine men with metal rods for half an hour because she was a Christian and would not recant and become a Hindu. She almost died. After she came around uh, later on and she regained some strength, she said this. She said, God protected me and my life was spared. I felt his presence. If not for God, we would be dead. I have never thought of leaving God because he alone has helped us. Remain in Christ Jesus who sustains us and he will bless you. Peace in Christ is found nowhere else. How many Christians do we read of in situations like that to whom God gives special grace, special blessings and protects them and brings them into a deeper relationship with him? This is the reality of suffering as a Christian. How we need to pray for such people and learn from them. And put it in the context of our own country. Yes, there is a measure of low-level suffering to face as a Christian. But it's nothing, is it? Compared to what many are going through. And certainly compared to that glory that is to be revealed. So that was the second T and C of being a Christian. Suffering. The third one, and briefly to finish, is salvation. And this is the best one, and you know all about it, I'm sure. Verse 5 and verse 6, speaking of those who are ignoring God, he says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead. Though judged in the flesh, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter reminds them there is a judgment to come. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will be asked a question like this. What did you do with Jesus Christ? And then we read in verse 17. If it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And we know the outcome for those people Jesus described it like this in Matthew 8 and verse 12 as being outer darkness, excluded from the presence of God for eternity. But the good news is there is a gospel. He refers to it in verse 6. He refers to it in verse 17. There is the good news that those who have turned from their own way and have trusted and followed Jesus will be welcomed eternally into God's presence. Fullness of joy the Bible speaks about. Perfect peace. Eternal love. No suffering. No pain. No death. Hearing those wonderful words. Well done. 
good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. That is why the gospel must be preached. Because it is the only way that people can come from their darkness for eternity into light for eternity. Uh, out of bondage for eternity into liberty and love for eternity. The gospel must be preached that Jesus died to take the consequences of my sin that I might have peace with God. What a wonderful transforming thing the gospel is. And Peter is saying here to these people, yes, who are serving him, who are suffering, remember the greatness of the gospel. Without it, think what your future would be with it. And many of these that he was writing to would die within a few years because of the persecution. Remember what is ahead of you. How do I know if this is true of me? Well, we read in John 1, don't we? That all who received him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Believe and receive. We are the children of God and we have that glorious future ahead of us. So here we see three of the terms and conditions of the Christian life. It may sound daunting. Serving. Suffering. Not sure if I want that. Salvation. I'll have that part. But we can't divorce one part from another. We are called to serve accompanied by suffering in whatever context that may be, but we have that assurance of salvation, both here and in the future. We may ask ourselves the question, is it really worth it? But that's not really the question. The question we should be asking is not, is it worth it, but is he worth it? Is Jesus worth it? The only one who loved us so much that he died for us, the one who forgives us, keeps us, helps us, gives us joy, love, peace, grace to help, strength, eternal life, and so on. Is he worth it? And every true Christian will give a resounding yes to that. He is worth it. So may you and I seek to honor God by accepting his T's and C's, by serving him, as we are able, accompanied by whatever suffering may come our way, knowing that we have that glorious future ahead of us, the fullness of salvation, that whole weight of glory is ahead of those who are trusting in the Lord. And as we honor God by seeking to serve him in that way, he'll be glorified and we'll be blessed.